1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Katie Coldiron, and I'm based at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And I have the pleasure today to be speaking to Jennifer Kearns, author of Circulating Culture, Transnational Cuban Networks of Exchange, released this year from the University Press of Florida. Jennifer Kearns is a research fellow in the Department of Anthropology at University College London And uh, thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer.
2: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: So I have to tell you, um, this book, for anybody like myself that spent significant amounts of time in Cuba and or Miami, you're going to recognize a lot of things in here. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it. And if there are things you don't know, it's going to make you want to go out and find them. I already have a list of things that Jennifer has mentioned in this book that I want to go out and look for um, here in my surroundings of Miami. Um, So I thought, um, Jennifer, we could start um, with you just telling us a little bit about how this work came to be.
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you. And thanks. For me, actually, incidentally, it's kind of like the peak test of success, right? That if people who are from that place also recognize some of the things that I described, that means I've done at least a bit of my job. Right. So that's a relief. Um, Yeah. In terms of how it came to be, I don't have a great story for you on this. I mean, I was originally um, it, it came out of my PhD research. Which was sort of started in 2016. And originally, my plan was to go and actually just be doing ethnographic fieldwork in Cuba. And then there were a couple of kind of challenges there. Maybe we'll come back to that, but there were a couple of reasons why that was going to be difficult. Um, And so then I ended up sort of slightly coming up with a different plan, which was going to be to sort of look at the relationship between the diaspora in Miami and people in Cuba. And I was originally interested in looking at the digital really looking at sort of emerging internet connectivity in Cuba and how this was a way of keeping in touch with with relations in uh in Florida but then uh sort of accidentally really I, I I ended up arriving in Miami and just sort of followed my nose and there was all of this other stuff going on uh which again we'll probably talk about but sort of antique shops and uh in I think in American English you call them funeral parlors and uh, porn shops and all of these other sort of places in Miami where there was just all this stuff going on, all this material, uh, stuff and yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of by accident and I spent, uh, 15 months sort of flitting around mostly between Miami and Havana, but also to Guyana, to Mexico, to Panama, um, and sort of ended up then going away and thinking about it a lot and later kind of coming up with some larger theories that, that draw it all together.
1: Definitely. And this was, I mean, I remember this moment very well. I wasn't in Miami, but I was, I I was here sometimes and I was in Florida, that moment of like the Obama opening and then the, the sudden closure by Trump. Um, And you talk a lot about that moment and, and, you know, the repercussions of that both here and in Cuba. Um so just to um to clarify, you um while you were doing this research were able to be based at the Cuban Research Institute here at FIU, is that right?
2: I was, yes. They very generously hosted me and also helped me uh, because I'm I'm from the UK, so I needed sort of visa sponsorship and so on to go to stay in the us for that long um and yes as you said it was also a very particular moment and it's it's amazing because it's not even that long ago right it's i think it's it's five years since i left miami and it's it's an amazing it's an amazingly changeable relationship uh, in some ways obviously not in all in other senses but the relationship between miami and havana and yes so when i started the project it was um barack obama was in office fidel castro was alive uh, shortly into my PhD Fidel Castro of course died and Trump won the election and so then I was in Miami really through the sort of peak of 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 the Trump years um and then of course there were also administrative changes happening in Cuba at the same time and then the book goes right the way through to sort of the election of Biden and and again like lots of changes in policy regarding Cuba uh, throughout those five years so um and especially with regard to what people can send, how regularly you can go, whether or not you can visit people frequently. like Those things were changing for my interlocutors. Sometimes even on a sort of every few months, it was quite hard to keep up with. Uh, so, yes, it's, it was a very particular moment, um, which, again, obviously was not planned on my part, but it just so happened I was there in the, if you like, right place at the right time.
1: So um, speaking of kind of being in the being in the right place at the right time, um, your research obviously did take me back to when I used to do social science things, um, which was around the same era you were doing this research. And now, of course, I've transitioned to more being a historian. but one thing that I find really interesting about what anthropologists and, and, and ethnographers do is they really, they have to be in the place. There's no really other option than to be there because I feel like, you know, you probably found things you weren't even really setting out to looking for just by being definitely, there, being a, definitely. being a witness. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about your research pro- process and the challenges associated with um, your different research sites, partic- primarily Miami and Havana.
2: Yeah, definitely. So yes, you're absolutely right. I think the sort of idea of doing ethnographic fieldwork uh, is pretty central to anthropology as a discipline. It's what we teach, um, and and especially this idea of participant observation. So not just that you might show up and just sort of observe what people are doing, but that you try to really get involved, get stuck in, sometimes in situations that might feel very alien to you, you know, as a person from a, a different culture. Um, but that's quite a powerful way sometimes of of experiencing a new place um, and in my case new places because of course I was I was between several places which are also in their own ways very different to each other um, so yes there were certainly some significant challenges and very different challenges actually in different places to be honest I I found Miami initially very hard um, to get along in because for me as um as a European woman it it actually was very different to what I'm used to in sort of accessing a city um, we were chatting i think just before we started this call about the need to have a car for example and that might be really obvious to a lot of american listeners but i'm used to walking and cycling uh, or, or getting on a um, you know what we call the tube in london right and, and so miami even just from getting from a to b actually was very difficult and and very expensive for me. And I had to try and rent a car. And then that had a lot of logistical problems because I I didn't have an American driving license. So hilariously, and this is a small aside, I had to take the American driving test in Haitian Creole which was interesting, um <laughs> but also quite funny, um and the good news was I passed <laughs> but then so there was things like that in Miami, but that also was quite difficult in terms of doing research because everybody has their own cars and they're in these private spaces, so they're in their car, and then they get out at work and then they get back into their car, and then they go back home and It's quite hard to just hang about on a corner and hope to bump into somebody if you're not really invited into that space. Um, so in, in a way I had the opposite problem in Havana that there were just people everywhere. I almost couldn't get time to be alone. But the problems that I experienced in Havana were, were different ones where at the time it was quite limited internet connectivity. So I was quite alone. I was very separated from my own support networks back back home. Um, and it was difficult to find food. I did actually lose quite a lot of weight while I was doing my research. Um, so there were some sort of different logistical challenges i suppose um and then i think maybe finally the issue of of moving back and forth between those two places with such frequency inevitably attracted attention from different groups of people uh as i'm sure you you will recognize and, and i'm sure some people listening will recognize you know that that's, that's a quite a in and of itself a political thing to do in that place you know in miami to be going back and forth to cuba a lot is with some people, a very unpopular thing. Um, And there was a lot of scrutiny. I definitely was questioned a lot at the airport every time. Um, You know, it's it's a particular route to travel, I suppose. Um, And so, yes, I did feel a lot of scrutiny and I had to defend quite hard what I was doing and and the fact that I was not a spy, basically. I was accused of that quite a lot. Um, (laughs) So it took a long time, I think, to earn the trust uh, as it should do I mean of, of people both in Havana and in Miami for them to really understand what it was I was actually trying to do and that I wasn't there as, as some sort of political project but just because I was sort of just hanging out really and for people that are not familiar with anthropology that probably does sound a bit odd you yeah. know so it did take a little while to to uh, kind of ingratiate myself I guess in some of the communities I was trying to to be involved in
1: Definitely. And just to clarify, how many years was it that you were doing this research?
2: Oh, in total, I think it was over about 18 months. Um, I came back to the UK for a month for a bit of a break and stuff. So it was sort of moving around a lot. but, But in total, it was over about 18 months that I was sort of circulating between these different countries.
1: And so the countries you visited, obviously you were in Miami and Havana, but um, you were also in Guyana and Panama, is that right?
2: Uh, Yeah, Panama, and also very briefly in Mexico. Um, So I was essentially, the the method was I was split sort of 50-50 of my time, basically between Miami and Havana. And then as I became more incorporated into some of these uh, networks of of material exchange, uh, I would sometimes accompany people on their trips uh, to buy things or sell things and so sometimes yes there are pl- there are lots of places that are on that list the ones that I was able to get to were uh, guyana and panama principally which are quite key destinations to uh to buy things to import into cuba there were lots of others that i would have loved to have gone to that would either difficult or impossible because of visa restrictions and and things like that russia for example is actually quite uh, a key location and and i do mention it in the book um and i almost went and that year i don't know how much this was reported in the us but that year there was a bit of a diplomatic uh problem shall we say between the uk and russia uh, the poisoning of some people and members of the public in the uk and it was exactly when i was thinking of going to russia and i decided that was maybe not the best decision so there were some other sort of things that impacted where i was able to go as well
1: but i remember in your book that you um relied on like secondhand accounts for like the russia piece yes um, is so there that right?
2: was a cuban man who i actually did spend quite a lot of time with in havana and he sort of told me all about his experiences of of having been taken as a mula to russia so yes I, I i was able to sort of hear about it well firsthand but but not sort of witnessed it as it was happening if you like
1: mm-hmm. so getting into the the thick of it um the thread that seems to tie this work together is the idea of value and how both the tangible and intangible accrue value through this transnational web that exists between Cuba and the diaspora. And something interesting that you do that I love is um, you invoke the um, concept, which anybody that's taken Intro to Anthropology will know, Malinowski's Kula Ring, which you dub the Mula Ring. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about this concept as well as more on the definition of a Mula in the Cuban context for those listeners that that might not be familiar.
2: Yes, for sure. Um, yes, you know, absolutely right. It is pretty much the central topic in the book. Um, so yes, the book is, is absolutely exploring value. Um, and I guess potentially in a slightly different sense to many of the more kind of classic anthropological texts that look at value, which often will focus on production in quite a Marxian sense of, um, of, of the, of the words. Um, and when I, went to Cuba I think I think for anybody that actually spends time in Miami airport it's very visibly obvious that there are these groups of people who are shipping things back and forth rolled up in sort of spherical plastic uh, packages and I'm sure you're nodding you've certainly seen it as well I think a lot of us have Um, and so it became very clear to me that a lot of things are not produced in Cuba but nonetheless when you get to Cuba you can get hold of a lot of items um, which have been informally Uh, acquired and circulate around economies of sort of various degrees of informality, I suppose. Um, And that really the key to being a well-connected, person in Cuba and therefore a sort of materially well furnished person as well is to have these networks of um, I, I, I mentioned the word confianza but it like trust or solidarity these kind of social networks of connectedness that means that you can access things that have been brought in in, in various means uh, and so I ended up focusing a lot more on this idea of circulation hence the title of the book instead of instead of production um, because uh, again, to make it really explicit, a, a very, very key uh, context for this book is, of course, the, the US embargo of Cuba. And so officially, things are not imported into Cuba and officially, you're not allowed to uh, just sort of go down and to, I don't know, DHL or something and just ship something. Um, and the rules around that also change quite frequently. And I, and I discussed that in the book about how over the years, the degree to which you can send things to Cuba has shifted with different political um, systems, I suppose. So, yes, to come back to the Malinowski, um, as you said, it's quite a kind of core thing within anthropology, this idea of the cooler Ring. Uh, so, in a nutshell, he describes this sort of network of circulation uh, in uh, Melanesia, in, in Papua New Guinea, and how essentially people on an island are able to connect with the beyond by going to other places in sort of expanding networks of of material circulation but it also in that enterprise they connect with other cultures with other sources of value they're able to sort of expand who they are and what they represent and then they are able to go back to their home having built up a certain prestige which Equates to value in their local setting. Essentially, that's kind of, I would say, the crux of Malinowski's cooler ring and and how it's been used in anthropology over the last almost hundred years since it was published. Um, and so yes, I don't quite sort of say that they're exactly the same, but a mula or a mule in in often might mean, for example, a, a drug smuggler. And to be very clear, I was not following people smuggling drugs or anything like that. Uh, but in the Cuban context, particularly, as I said, it's very hard sometimes to get hold of even things like you know, T-shirts or um, jeans or medicine or light bulbs, some really mundane day-to-day items. And all of this stuff gets taken into Cuba, often in suitcases or informally by people who are visiting friends and family and things like that sort of remittances ultimately it's sort of you could group it all together as material remittances um and so yes these mullahs there are also some people that essentially make a living from this that they they will travel to other places uh procure items and then take them back to cuba and sell them on uh, or potentially trade them with other family and friends and so on and so that's how a lot of this stuff gets in. So for anyone that's been to Havana and stayed in a, a Casa Particular, like a sort of Airbnb, you know, probably the bed sheets, the soap, the salt and pepper in the meal, you know, all of these items have probably come into Cuba this way. Uh, certainly the cell phones, the makeup, the hair straighteners, I don't know, all of these things which you can find in Cuba, despite the fact that the shops are often empty. This is how you get these things. Um, and so I ended up following some of these mules in their travels to places like Guiana and Panama um, and and then following them back to Cuba and seeing how these items were then circulated further. But then the book also is not just looking at quite literally the material flows, but also looking at what that does in terms of connecting different groups of people and how people gain ultimately power, really, or prestige uh, in their own local setting and, and become I don't know movers and shakers, I guess, in their own world when they get back, and that's really the sort of parallel that I draw with the cooler ring. That this is its material circulation as a medium for self-making, as a as a sort of a project.
1: Definitely, and I think by focusing on on this, you know, material culture, like you are um, in this work, it really, I think, um, kind of. Um, Puts into question a lot of the popular paradigms, both in academic spaces and in just discourse about Cuba, of like Cuba's stuck in time or Cuba's the victim of, you know, everything in Cuba can be blamed on the embargo or as they say, there, el bloqueo, because that doesn't really take into account this constant movement. I mean, of course, obviously the US trade embargo doesn't affect Cuba, but um, there is this whole other little world <laughs> that you are exploring.
2: Definitely, and actually, something I really wanted to emphasize as well, and I and I hope at least that that the that the lens on material culture enables this is to really emphasize the this the agency and the strategies that people, and I mean everyday people. I'm not talking to politicians here. We're just talking about you know cousins, friends, teachers, whatever. The strategies that they mobilize to make meaningful lives for themselves in often quite difficult circumstances so of course the big backdrop to this is you know the embargo uh this this political rupture between the US and Cuba but then the people that I was hanging out with were just sort of nonetheless getting on with it as best they could making their family across nations in a way that was meaningful to them within the circumstances that were available to them. And so I, I say it in the book and I will keep saying it whenever I talk to people about the book. It's not a book that sort of sets out to take an ideological position or say that, you know, Cuba is right or the U.S. is wrong or vice versa. Um, it's much more about looking at the very quotidian aspects of everyday life, actually, of of the mundane things of this person needs to get a light bulb, for example. And so they're going to message a cousin who's in Miami and that cousin knows somebody that works in a light bulb shop. I'm making that example up, but really very sort of quite in some ways unexciting things, to be honest. But through that, I think I hope at least you get a sense of of the fact that people make their their worlds and they do that through material things. We all do that through material things all the time. And. Um, and it's just that's no different in, in Cuba, despite the, as you said, those sort of often quite fetishizing discourses of Cuba as a sort of place stuck in time um, where, you know, as you said, there are very particular imaginaries, I suppose, of what Cuba is and what it's made to represent in in popular discourse. And, and this book is probably a bit of an attempt as well at just showing something just a bit more nuanced, perhaps.
1: Absolutely. And so um, you mentioned remittances there, uh, and um, of course um, you do say repeatedly that you know you don't you take a different path than others i think you cite susan Eckstein's scholarship specifically by not solely focusing on cash remittances which has changed a lot since you even did your research um but you nonetheless focus on how and why those in diaspora support their relatives and even non-relatives or people they're not really very even you know on the surface you wouldn't think they were close to back in cuba um could you tell us a little bit more about this
2: Yes, thank you. Yes. I mean, I, th- I think you're right that that much of the scholarship around remittances, not all of it by any stretch of the imagination, but much of it does focus on on money, which in other diasporic groups is a really prevalent uh, activity. Um, you know, the, the amounts of money that are sent back to, for example, you know, Mexico, Nicaragua also all, all parts of the world frankly is enormous and there's a lot of literature literature that shows how the diaspora will often really be up underpinning the economy sometimes of these of these countries that really depend upon the people that that relocate to places like the us and then send money back and formally this has often been very difficult for cubans because formally it was very difficult to send money to cuba and of course policy on that has shifted in waves over the years but there is a cap on that, the amount you can send. And so I think particularly in the Cuban example, perhaps partly because of the the embargo, remittances are potentially even more material because it is some, sometimes easier to send things like light bulbs or bike tires or something than money. Um, again, that, that changed even while I was in the field as we moved from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and policy changed. Um, but, yes, uh, you're, you're quite right that I also sort of give examples of how, in a sense, looking only at remittances to what we might strictly call family is also a bit limiting because people make their family through this activity. And I think especially actually in a Cuban paradigm of care, material care is very important. It's a very important way of expressing love and relatedness to others, um, as in many other places as well, but I do, I did certainly experience that myself to be quite important in Cuba um, and others have written about that. And so, yes, I do actually end up using this idea of material transfer as a, uh, metaphor perhaps for kinship itself and i do engage a lot with um, again some quite kind of classic anthropo- anthropological theories about what is relatedness you know it's not only about sort of dna necessarily, and sort of what we might call blood relatedness that there are other ways in which we construct relatedness to people around us and so i contend in the book that remittances and i i call them material remittances to try and include also as, as well as money some of these other items like T-shirts, light bulbs, sheets, so on um, also become an important means to do that, especially in light of uh, relationships where some of these people can't see each other, haven't seen each other for 50 years. perhaps you know some of the people I interview in the book have absolutely no idea what their you know cousin looks like. They have not seen them for 50 years, but they maintain contact several times a year by materially being in each other's lives, um, which is another way of being family. I suppose.
1: Definitely. Um, so, moving through through your chapters, um, you have um, you you spend a lot of time in Hialeah, which for those who uh, might not be familiar with Miami Dade is demographically the most Cuban part of of Miami Dade County, even more so than Little Havana. At this point, Little Havana obviously has a lot of symbolic power. But um, as Jennifer, you mentioned in in your book, Hialeah, um, since the early days of exile, migrants have went less to Little Havana and more to Hialeah. I once, just an anecdote from Miami on my part, um, I once met a business owner who owns a restaurant that's named La Chucheria. And oh I
2: know
1: that yeah, one <laughs> yeah there's one on the malecón <laughs> yeah and one in Little Havana and I yeah. met um the owner once here Jesus El Chucho and um he had told me literally how much he regretted opening in Little Havana because mm. he feels like he would have had more business if he had went to Hialeah so interesting yeah Yeah, that's kind of the context. Um, But Jennifer, (laughs) what you do is you spend a lot of time in a pawn shop in (laughs) Hylia. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about this space and what what you saw there.
2: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think I also did quite deliberately choose Hylia in a sense because One of the other things I set out to try and do in the book is to engage with a slightly different group of Cubans in Miami to the group that we read about most often when we read about the Cuban diaspora. Um, As you said, like a lot of the sort of original exiles that came over in the 60s and settled in Little Havana. And I've actually really sort of created this this well-known diaspora have very ideological views, understandably, and very particular uh, viewpoints on to relationships with Cuba, um, which is, I think, quite common knowledge. And Hialeah is less discussed, maybe, outside of of Greater Miami, but as you said, is actually demographically very Cuban, but also potentially a little bit different to Little Havana in that it's also got a large number of Cubans that that don't speak any English. That you, I mean, actually, I. Don't, I don't think I ever did speak English in Hialeah. Uh, There's a lot of people who've arrived quite recently, maybe in the last five to 10 years, and so did grow up under socialism in Cuba and then migrated. A lot of them migrated also for more economic reasons as opposed to ideological ones. They weren't sort of fleeing the revolution so much as they were moving potentially to try and make money to send back as remittances to relatives still there. And so this group in Hialeah does maintain a lot more contact with people on the island. There's also... Uh, at least a different, I would say, set of politics and political concerns about that in Hialeah, to in Little Havana. And so this is more the group of Cubans that I was hanging out with. Uh, and some of them kind of make a living straddling the two. They almost have one foot in each place and some of them are literally going back and forth on a weekly basis. Uh, and that is their their livelihood as well as their sort of social connectedness um, and yes it was almost sort of by accident that i was very interested in this idea of value and of what does it what does economic value mean to these people who are spending half of their time in a formally socialist system you know formally speaking cuba is still socialist um, and then the other half of their lives in miami which i think by m- many of our estimations is kind of really associated with capitalistic excess almost, you know, bling and sort of super yachts and this sort of image that you get of Miami as the golden city and all of that. So there's this group of people who are very frequently moving between these two places. And I was interested to understand how they navigate that shift on a regular basis. Um, and something that also really struck me as, a, as an outsider to the US was just the prevalence of these pawn shops, um, which The sort of one on every block or two on every block um, in lots of parts of of Miami and and especially in Hialeah, uh, which is not something I actually see so much, incidentally, in in the UK, which is maybe why it stood out to me. So I didn't actually really know how they worked, which I just literally wandered in out of curiosity. Actually, I just did not know what it meant Um, and got in there. And it was just a treasure trove of all these things that everybody considered to be very, quote, Cuban little gold Saint Lazarus medallions, little, there were just all these sort of uh, tropes almost of Cubanness that people had pawned. Uh, And it struck me as a very interesting space where the definition of what is considered valuable is really quite hardly delineated. So the man that ran this pawn shop was able to say, this item, which has great emotional resonance for you, and which you carried with you from Cuba on a boat, is worth $7.50, for example. Like that, for, and I saw lots of these scenarios playing out, and I described a few of them in the book, where these people would sort of come in, often in a moment of vulnerability, of needing money, often for a quite emotional reason, like wanting to send it back to a, a struggling relative on the other side in Cuba. And so they would come in with an item that they thought had a particular value. And sometimes that might be in a more of an emotional value because it was something that they associated with their home or their former life. And then in the, in this space of a pawn shop, it's given a monetary value. Um, And so I discussed that a bit. And then one of the other things that I found interesting, at least that came up was that some of these, I call them the new Cubans in the book, but these sort of this group in Hialeah that is living more in the, in the between and the betwixt of of Cuba and her, um and Miami use these spaces in a way that uh surprised me at least uh so I think it for many of us uh, in Europe and I think in North America there's a bit of an, a stigma perhaps or an association of of people needing to use porn shops at times of um economic struggle and uh, I mean there's no point in lying about it right these these shops are very prevalent in poorer neighborhoods um, and there's a strong association with that and so I was quite struck by hanging out with these people that were using them in a way that I hadn't expected they were almost using them as a way of renting out their own items so that they could have money when they needed the money and then they could get the item back when they wanted the item back and it was a way of almost having shared ownership of an item uh, which And so I discussed this and I discussed what that means within sort of a socialist versus a capitalist paradigm of value, essentially. So in that way, I found these spaces to be uh, creative possibilities that people were making the most of in ways that, to me at least, were quite surprising.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS?
1: specifically there is one detail that i really wanted to talk to you about from this from this chapter which is you do talk a bit about the idea of presentation particularly when new cubans go back to cuba and as you just mentioned kind of renting jewelry or whatnot or posing in front of expensive cars and that has a obviously a very negative stereotype associated with it in miami that you see kind of made fun of on social media outlets like only in date or los peachy boys the idea of the cubacero. um yeah, yeah. so yeah. i was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that
2: yeah thank you um it's it's true. And it was something that I, again, as an outsider to, to all of this, found quite striking that on the one hand, there's this idea that in a socialist uh, society like Cuba, there is no formal recognition of a class structure. You know, there's this idea that we are all unified in our, in our common purpose and then when that maps onto and i'm not saying necessarily by the way that I, I i think that's what happens on the ground but there is at least that idea sort of ideologically speaking and then you have these places in Hialeah where there's a very visible performance of i think visual yeah visual tropes that we associate with excess so bling as you said you know the jewelry the cars the sort of instagram fantastic stuff and and you're right that that obviously gets a lot of attention in miami and it's not only cubans and this is also something that you see with venezuelans and other diasporic groups um certainly in miami uh and so i was very struck by this sort of visual performance of wealth and also what does that mean in cuba which is a place where historically at least you know even 10-15 years ago this would have been a very stigmatized thing and uh there are various other books that discuss the changing sort of symbolism of what they call yuma. You know, this idea of the other, of the capitalistic American culture has shifted within the Cuban imaginary to now be more associated with a positive thing where previously it would have been really, uh, yeah, really stigmatized, really taboo to sort of parade material wealth in that way. Um, And so one of the things I also talk about through this discussion of the pawn shops is how in Hialeah we see a sort of playing out of the visual expectations that people in Cuba would have of what it would be like to live in Miami and that this is actually a very different uh sort of set of symbols almost that are being mobilized by these as i call them new cubans and while they are considered very disdainfully by perhaps the more middle class and and um and wealthier earlier Cuban migrants in in Miami. So, for example, the Cuban exiles in Little Havana who would see this as quite vulgar or quite gaudy behavior. And to your point, yes, you see this a lot in the media in Miami. Uh, I think the point I try to make here is that for the new Cubans, they're not necessarily they don't really care that it doesn't fit in to Miami's sensibilities of what is value because they're performing this, if you like, on Instagram and so on to an audience that's actually back in Cuba, and that's that's where they're connected to. They're connected to their families back in Cuba and they want to show that the sacrifice of of having left, of having gone somewhere else to make a life for themselves was worth it uh, materially. And so I, I, I use this again at the beginning of the book to set up just how interconnected Havana and Hialeah are and that the sort of visual imagination of success is really on an axis between Hialeah and Havana as opposed to Hialeah and Miami. That's, that's really the point I try to make through it.
1: Yes. And um, obviously, um, you know, thinking about expectations in Cuba, um, obviously, you know, making a salary, even if it is, you know, under the table in U.S. dollars, puts you well ahead of, you know, the average person in Cuba where the average state salary is about $20 a month. And now here in Miami, we are arguably the most expensive housing market in the United States. And Hialeah actually, I believe, is in the top 10 list. Um so who would have thought um because hialeah had this reputation as you mentioned of being this kind of working class area with a lot of industry you see a lot of warehouses there yeah, yeah. um but nowadays it's it's very interesting to live down here right now
2: <laughs> It is and actually I also I mean one of the I don't, this isn't in the book actually but one of the interlocutors from hialeah that I I was spending time with uh yeah was really struggling with that and and she was essentially living in a shed the, the garden shed of another Cuban family that had got here about 15 years earlier. So they're also between, and this is why I do try to pick, at, pick out these slightly different generations of Cubans in Miami now because Cubans have been in Miami for 60 years and counting building this very considerable diaspora but even within that there are these different sort of class sensibilities and and vulnerabilities for sure and yes it's it's certainly I mean I found it as somebody coming from the UK a very expensive place to be and I was certainly in a much more advantageous situation than, than the people arriving from Cuba um, but yes I think a lot of this has played out in the imagination that people in Cuba have built up over decades of what it would be like to be rich in a capitalist country. There's this sort of imagined other, and so the the visual tropes of this bling, of this excess, excess uh, of all the gold jewelry that I was seeing in these pawn shops, I think really speaks more to this sort of fetishized imagination of what wealth might look like in a Cuban mentality, as opposed to uh, to your point. I mean, in Miami, maybe. There would be other more valuable sort of assets that people might look to buy. So it's that sort of contradiction, really, that I was trying to tease out early on in the book, because I think that sets up what a lot of the other chapters then go on to look at, which is how people then maintain these things over difficult circumstances.
1: Definitely. So you have an entire chapter on the movement of digital content between Cuba and Miami, particularly through invoking the concept of El Paquete. Could you explain to the listeners what this is and how it works?
2: Yes, they certainly can. And I'm sure that this has changed a bit in the years since I've left because internet co- con- connectivity in Cuba has changed quite a bit in the last few years. But at the time when I was first in Cuba um, in 2016, it was very hard to get online. You could get online, but only really in, in urban centers. So, for example, in central Havana, you would have to go to a public square where there was a government provided internet wi-fi source and if you were cuban you would have to hand over your national id card or if you were a foreigner you'd have to hand over your passport and pay at the time it was five us dollars for an hour late by the time i left it was one us dollar per hour but to go back to your point earlier where the official state salary is 20 us dollars a month of course people top that up informally but officially that is an enormous monthly, a fraction of your monthly income to get online. And it's a very sort of difficult connection. It drops out a lot and, and so on. And so surfing the web, as we might call it in Cuba, is certainly was throughout the time I was there. Very difficult. Um, and yet when I arrived, I remember that funny enough, the first time I ever saw Game of Thrones was in Cuba. It was in Cuba before it came to London, at least as far as I'm aware. <laughs> Everybody was watching it. And I was sort of thinking, well, where does this come from? And I also remember watching like BBC documentaries, like David Attenborough shows and thinking, where is all this coming from? It's everywhere. Every kind of bar and restaurant's got it playing on a TV in the corner. And the answer to that is this informal economy unto itself, which in Cuba is called El Paquete, which means the package. And at when I was there, this started off essentially being like a like a hard drive or like a sort of set of USB sticks with all of this downloaded, mostly visual content, but also music. You know, soap operas. Uh, you can get audio books and PDFs and all sorts of content, um, and it circulates in the way that lots of informal circulation happened in socialist economies both in Cuba and in Eastern Europe so it's sort of a network of, of trust and certain people know that oh you know Jennifer's looking for this and I know that that person has it and so on and so on uh, and so initially this used to happen once a week and it would go across Cuba and people would pay sort of I don't know the equivalent of about 10 cents to get a film that they wanted to see um, and, and in the book I actually do describe how this has sort of come out of, of earlier digital content or analog content sharing practices in cuba going right the way back to you know the 60s and 70s um, and nowadays it's actually become more or less sort of daily if not several times a day and so if you 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 have a sort of a dealer a paquetero, a packager uh, who represents your local street maybe or the block that you live in and they there's a whole sort of supply chain where people go and get content and then sell it on and sell it on. And some of it is also exchanged for free. Um, and ironically, as I said, I sort of came across this because I was able to access a lot more digital content in Cuba, despite being offline, than I was able to in Miami, where I couldn't really afford, I certainly couldn't afford, um, what do you call it, like cable TV and stuff. Um, you know, And I didn't have access to that in Miami. Uh, so I actually had far more digital access in some ways in Cuba Um, but of course my original interest in this was also because it is deeply material because it's all passing around on these material hard drives which go hand to hand Uh, and so that's kind of how it started and then I also sort of describe towards the end of that chapter how in some ways the situation has almost been reversed that now uh, albeit in small scale there are some Cubans that have migrated to Hialeah to the Miami area and miss this sort of saturation of d- digital content that they once were able to enjoy in Havana. And so I have actually seen this paquete now being exported out of Cuba and into Miami because it is much cheaper than getting cable TV, for example, or um, you know Hulu or Netflix. So again, really that chapter is sort of showing how these two places are so intertwined in every way, including even in digital content.
1: Definitely. I mean, what you said about Game of Thrones reminded me of I remember when the finale came out and I watched it the day it came out and if I was talking to a friend of mine in Cuba the day after and he had already seen it and anyone who's familiar with internet in Cuba knows that most of the time like it's not good enough really to stream. Like you can't really do that. So the fact that he had seen it arguably almost as quick as I had, really, really shocked me and made me realize how, how much power that this system of just circulating, you know, removable disk drives has. So so moving on, um, you have a really fascinating chapter on the antique trade between Miami and Havana. And I personally knew more about that of Havana than in Miami, because I think my perceptions had always been like, you know, in the earlier years of, of exile, um, Cubans who were abandoning the country weren't allowed to take anything with them they had to leave all of their stuff and so in Havana as you mentioned now you have all these kind of like curiosity shops of like just random stuff from pre-59 and even post-59 because there's that like niche tourism of like seeing the revolution Um, yeah definitely
2: something Europeans perhaps are more keen on yeah the sort of tropes of socialism and so on Um,
1: definitely and so, I was wondering how you kind of discovered this giant network, both in Miami and Havana, and of um, everything that you learned and saw um, from this system. What most surprised you? I
2: oh, mean, again, I just, I discovered it honestly by mistake, um, as with all of this stuff. Um, in you're right that in Havana, it's it's quite visible that there are these antique, antique shops, and some people, perhaps more Europeans than Americans. Go and are very you know. There's this idea of Cuba as being stuck in time. That this idea of it sort of a lot of the tourist literature even it's sort of like go back to the 50s, go back and be in this old car and so on. And so that is a thing which I think also in Cuba they are sensible of that and market that you know as a, as a thing for tourists and and make something of that. So there was definitely that. Um, and then in Miami, again there are lots of shops. Actually, as it turned out far more than I expected the deal in uh like nostalgia stuff essentially aimed at this exile generation who left and have never gone back and I think it's fair to say that for some of them Cuba in their minds has also stayed still the day that they left and so some of these shops really do have it's, it's like walking into a sort of a curated museum of the Cuba that they think they remember uh, in 1959, as if the clock stopped at that point. Uh, So there are various examples I talk through, like um, what we would call, like the the phone book, what we would call the yellow pages in in the UK, at least of sort of the phone book from 1959 when the revolution struck. And you can go and look at it and sort of say, oh yes, I remember the blah, blah, blah family on the street over there, you know, maps. of the the cityscape um coca-cola bottles from before the revolution all sorts of things um and so a lot of this again you know the material is deeply emotional and um in some ways triggering i suppose and so i do in the chapter describe accompanying people who are going and sort of reliving their childhoods by handling these items by renting them out for significant birthday parties and you know they they become almost spiritual in their agency i think to evoke this lost past um there's also a part of that chapter where i go to um it's called the Cuba Nostalgia Fair. I believe it happens every year, actually, in Miami. It is quite an experience. I I strongly advocate going. It was it was quite overwhelming for me, but also for people there. You know, it's quite common to see people bursting into tears, looking at these items. Um, and it was there that, basically, accidentally, to be honest, I started to find out that some of these items were not brought with the exiles in 19. 59 some of them have been shipped out since some of them to order and that actually there is a very buoyant economy in moving items back and forth between miami and havana uh to wherever the market is strongest at that particular time and um of course all of the people in the book i've anonymized and i've tried to change details so that they're not identifiable but there was definitely a lot of um Interesting, shall we say, discussions about the morality of this, about what, you know, who stole from who in terms of you know, the communists stole my birthright and so I'm going to steal it back. And then, you know, there's, there are various examples that I give in the book of quite loaded moralizing discourses that get attached to these items as well. Um, and then, separately to that, there's also a bit of a, a movement of items that are sort of created as antiques so they're not necessarily old per se but they are uh taken to spain and made to look older and then they go to cuba and then they come in the suitcase of somebody and and basically by following some of these items along their own trajectories uh sort of using a lot of arjunapadurai social life of things essentially as a, as a framework for this sort of by following these items you start to see these layers of narrative. different people apply to them and they sort of build up almost palimpsestically really that these items are made to mean different things to different groups of people in a very ideological way I would say and I think the historicity of the antiques makes it particularly emotional for some of the people that I I interview in the book and there was there's some quite yeah some very emotional moments I, I I vividly remember meeting you know lots of people sort of crying and hugging items as if they were sort of long lost friends and and things like that so yeah it was probably one of the more interesting for me personally one of the more interesting things that I was not expecting to find at all and suddenly found myself in the middle of (laughs) like with much of the book frankly
1: (laughs) absolutely so um, coming to the end of your book, uh, the final chapter before your conclusion focuses on death and the negotiation of being buried in Cuba versus in exile. So I was hoping to, to talk to you about kind of why you decided to focus on this and what were the challenges, if any, in trying to learn about um, this topic, obviously a very sensitive one for, for many
2: Definitely. Um, And yeah, again, I'm not even sure that I would say I decided it was more that it was sort of happened at me and I sort of realized that it was quite interesting. Um, So, yeah, I'll start with a little story, actually, perhaps, because I think this demonstrates it quite well. And it's in the book um, that uh, a friend of mine, uh, her grandfather died, her Cuban grandfather, who had come in exile in 1961, I think. And for many of the exile generation in Miami, this is sort of the ultimate painful stab really that even in in death they can't go back to their homeland and this is a very painful uh, topic of course Uh, and so there's a big discussion it's often called el tema the the topic in Miami of you know whether or not it is acceptable to go back and a lot of people um, because of course the exile generation is now increasingly older um, and so there is a topic about whether they want to be buried uh, in Miami, or whether one day, if things were different, if socialism fell, is often the way they would put it, they would want to be uh, reinterred, perhaps in Cuba. And this is something that quite a lot of people will write into their will. Um, with some quite specific clauses as well and so this came to my attention and this friend of mine, her grandfather died and he wanted to be buried in Cuban soil and this is it becomes a very important this emphasis on soil like la tierra you know the earth of Cuba, um, but not while it was socialist and there was to my mind just this remarkable compromise that was reached where uh, it turns out that there is a very small park in Tampa, which is about a six hour drive from miami and this this park, technically belongs to Cuba. It was gifted to Cuba just before the revolution and by an odd quirk of history, still actually belongs to Cuba. And so to fast forward a little bit, I remember at about 11 at night with this friend who was holding a sort of a little plastic bucket and spade that you would take to the beach with a child, one of those. And she was sort of scooping earth from this park through a sort of metal fence into this little sort of beach bucket to take back to Miami to scatter over her grandfather's um, coffin as he was buried in Miami. And in her mind, this was very important because it was Cuban soil, but also very importantly, the soil from this park was belonged to a Cuba from before the revolution. And so this was pre-socialist Cuban soil, uh, which I know might sound very odd to a lot of listeners, but this was the thinking around it and that therefore she was fulfilling her grandfather's wishes, enabling him to be uh, buried in Cuban soil without going back and betraying uh, sort of the exile. And this just struck me as just phenomenal (laughs) for obvious reasons. And of course, there is a lot of materiality to death, both in terms of earth and coffins and of course, the body itself. And so in this last chapter, I started looking at why this is so important. And again, the ideology and the politics involved in, in moving between Cuba and the US. Uh, there are actually exemptions in the embargo that do allow for repatriation of bodies. Most Cubans in Miami would never want that because of the polit- politics of it, but some do. And so there is there are a few businesses that cater to this. And so I spent some time in these businesses hanging out with uh, morticians which was a again an unexpected part of my research but again this is sort of a very fraught moment a very emotional moment as you said and therefore I found a moment where materiality becomes very important and almost very mobilized I would say and that's really what the chapter looks at about how people can I suppose if I was going to be cynical sort of almost twist reality to create Cuban earth that is somehow not socialist, but therefore, you know, there's there's some sort of mental acrobatics that have to happen to, to fit all of that together, which is, I think, fascinating and and, and also was very important to the people I was spending time with.
1: Definitely. That was um, probably arguably my favorite chapter of the book. Personally, so um, so I always like to end this with um, asking the author, you know, what are you working on now, or do you have any projects that you'd like to do in the future?
2: Yeah, thank you. I mean, my answer might be a bit of a surprise because actually, I'm not doing um, any work at the moment to do with Cuba at all. Um, I my background has always been as a digital anthropologist. That's kind of how I became interested in Cuba, in a way. And so actually, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of research into AI and AI in uh, mental health care, which uh, sounds very different to what this book is about. There is a bit of a sort of a trajectory that (laughs) plotted the course over the last few years between the two. Um, So, yeah, now I'm actually moving into looking at some other types of technology in different kind of cultural settings um but yes in the immediate term I'm also uh doing some publicity for this book I'm going to be going back to Miami for the first time in five years later this year which I'm looking forward to also slightly nervous of I'm aware that some people will read this book and have different reactions to it because of that sort of more political discourse in Miami of 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 connection with Cuba um but yeah I'm looking forward to coming back and seeing probably also how all of this is I imagine, changed in my absence. I'm probably going to have to write another book now, like a second, a part two, to to bring it up to date. Well, I'll
1: definitely be on the lookout for that part two. But just I feel obligated because I'm technically an affiliate of the Cuban Research Institute at FIU. But if you're in Miami on October 20th at 7 p.m., Jennifer will be here at the Books and Books location in Coral Gables. Uh, presenting her book, and I'm sure the book will be there for purchase, and she will be there to sign it, of course. I'm <laughs> if you want,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely have her sign my copy, but this has been Jennifer Kearns uh, talking about her latest book, Circulating Culture, Transnational Cuban Networks of Exchange. Thank you so much, Jennifer.
2: Thank you. love lovely to talk to you.
1: <laughs> Likewise.